Welcome to Pennies from Kevin with your host, Kevin Ross. Progressive coaching for a better life. Welcome to Pennies from Kevin Extended. This is an extended version of the usual podcast, Pennies from Kevin. And today we're going to interview Dr. Mark Calarco. He is the National Medical Director of American Addiction Centers, which is a leader in drug and alcohol abuse treatment in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. If you want more information on American Addiction Centers, you can go to their website after the podcast, AmericanAddictionCenters.org. If you want more information on Pennies from Kevin, you can go to penniesfromkevin.podbean.com. Enjoy. What exactly is addiction? Right. So uh, I can give you a paraphrase. Happy to do it. However, this is many great minds have uh, worked together to come up with a really accurate definition. And the, and the best location would be at the, for the American Society of Addiction Medicine, uh, known as ASAM. They have a fantastic uh, definition of addiction. Uh, all practitioners, for the most part, you know, adhere to. Okay. Uh, so I would, I, they can they can say it much more eloquently than I ever could. But in a nutshell, addiction is really a brain disease with significant genetic determinants. That's also psychosocial in nature. It has uh, with many psychosocial variants that determine the degree to which it's on a spectrum. You know that that the uh, that the addiction will manifest. But at its root core, it is a disease just like a genetic disease, just like, let's say, type 2 diabetes. Okay. So then you pretty much, they're, they're, it, it, it's not really a something that just pops up. You're, you're saying that it's basically in a, already um, in somebody's, uh, in, their, in their biological makeup, it's, it's already there? Yes. Yeah, yeah, the genetic determinants, about 50% are, are the gene. Mm-hmm. And of course, environment, you know, uh, lifestyle, uh, up, uh, upbringing will all determine, you know, uh, will, will sort of influence that genetic potential. I see. It's just like with type two diabetes, people inherit a predisposition, but depending upon their lifestyle, uh, and, you know, upbringing, a lot of other factors, that will determine whether or not it ever manifests, and if it does manifest, to what degree. It's very analogous. So then a child whose parent is has addictive uh, personality or is addicted to certain substances or things, there's a good chance that that child may grow up to replicate that. That is, that is correct. They oh. have those genetic potential. And we need to, it's really important, uh, Kevin, that we do make this distinction and, and, and validate the importance. We, we can do genetic DNA testing now. We can look at brain, brain we can do uh, functional MRIs of the brain. We can correlate all We have enough science now that we can, we can corroborate what I just told you. But, you know, this destigmatizes addiction because for so long before we knew that we knew there was a brain disease and a, and a genetic brain disease, it was, it was people would look, look down on people who had some kind of addiction. You know, we call it, you know, substance use disorder now. But, you know, essentially, you know, it was a thing of willpower, you know, you find God, you know, whatever the reasons were. You know, but we don't really say those things to people who have uncontrolled diabetes, do we? Right. We say, well, you know, it's a genetic, you know, lifestyle environment does play a role, and those things are important. But at the same time, we don't stigmatize people for having diabetes as we do uh, traditionally for addiction. And that's why it's important to really, and that's ATEM, you know, defined that very clearly as well, that we, at its core, it is a genetic uh, brain disease. And then when people, um, 
I, I did some studying for addiction, but I, I want to make sure that I'm clear on this. When people uh, stigmatize it, it actually makes it worse because then the person isolates. They can do a lot of things. You know, any, any stressor, any person gets a stressor, whether it's guilt, right? Mm-hmm. When you stigmatize people, you basically give them a guilt trip, right? Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, that self-guilt, and they already have a lot of self-guilt loathing a lot of times because they feel, you know, out of control. And sometimes they jeopardize their, their work, uh, their, their, their relationship with family and friends, uh, employees, colleagues, coworkers. You know, they've done something, and, you know, depending on how far it's gone, but they, they sometimes will do activities that will, they'll, uh, if they're young, sometimes they'll, they'll steal, uh, you know, things from the, the parents' home or money to, to feed their addiction. So at the core, most of these people have a lot of self-guilt. We don't need to give them anymore. Uh, so that would oftentimes act as a trigger. But any kind of stressor tends to fall to make people relapse. Okay. So I've watched this show Intervention quite a few times, and I don't know if that's a – it's probably not yeah. enough time to, you know, really look at somebody's background in, in, this, in psychology. But, I mean, they do kind of give the basics of how the person with the addiction has um, it, it has ended up where they are. And almost always it starts in childhood. Yes, that is very true. And which the majority of people who have addiction also have a, a co-occurring disorder, okay? So whether it's major depressive disorder, bipolar, uh, personality disorder, and there's there's two reasons for that. Obviously, um, anything that's traumatic in childhood, whether it's physical, verbal, or otherwise, certainly or a traumatic event, you know, uh, like PTSD-related things to some kind of major event like 9-11. I mean, all those things are, are major traumatic events. At the same time, there's a significant genetic overlap between addiction and uh, and psychiatric disorders. They share a lot of the same genes. Uh-huh. And so most of the people who have addiction also have a co-occurring disorder. It could be, you know, like I said, depression. It could be bipolar. It could be personality. And, of course, a lot of times since these things run in families, one or more of the parents have it, right, genetically. Right. And so there's a lot of dysfunctional... Uh, family environments with the kids growing up that certainly, uh, you know, leads to a lot of the trauma that they experience. And that, in turn, obviously exacerbates the condition, you know, later in life, then, but then later in life, once it's resolved and worked through. So then in that, in that case, how do you uh, treat it? I mean, if it has a, if there is a, um, another factor that goes along with it, like depression or uh, some other factor, do you treat both or do you treat one or the other to sort of uh, kill the chain reaction? Yeah, it's a good question. You really have to treat both together. Uh, and the reason is is that although one can exacerbate the other and you know, vice versa, but the corollary is true, they, they have, they, they kind of are synergistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you don't address both, you're more likely to have a relapse. And also the medications that we use are different for both, typically. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but but, but we've, we've studies have shown, this is not my opinion, this is you know, well-established in, in the literature, that you know, when you deal with the co-occurring disorders as well as treat the primary addiction, you have better uh, recovery rates and, uh, and, so, it's so, and, and less likely to have relapse over time. So it, it's really critical that we do address both. And, and for this reason, we have both psychiatrists and addictionologists that concurrently uh, address people. And I, I'm just going to say for our company, which is pretty representative, I think, of the general population, since we have, you know, we treat tens of thousands of people every year, probably about 60, I'm going to give you a range, though, 
I, I think 60 to 70%, maybe maybe even 60 to 80% of the people have a co-occurring disorder along with their primary addiction. And I would just add that, you know, it's not, you know, people have an addiction. It's not an irrational act, really. I mean, people at the core go around on sort of because of the, the genetic inheritance they have, they're always a little bit moody discontented. And so this is because of what we call dopamine tone, and it's just they, they have less of the happy hormones that make, make other people who don't have the addiction that we just feel well and normal most of the time. These people always feel a little bit discontented. And so they just try to self-medicate with, you know, alcohol, drugs, whatever they have. Uh, it could be the whole gambit of anything they can be addicted to. It helps them feel better for a while. So there is a rational act underneath that. But, of course, it leads to all kinds of negative outcomes and, and, and ramifications. Right. So then the sub, the, the, whatever the subject or the, uh, whatever you're introducing is, is your friend and your enemy at the same time, uh, in the addiction. Right. Yeah. I have a food addiction. I know I do. And I know how it started <laughs> and you know I know, but I was going to ask you why, why don't they ever include that? Um, because I've seen other addictions. Like I said, it was my course of study at one time. So besides drugs and alcohol, I see people addicted to the gym. Right. You know who? Right. right. So, there, yes, there's gambling addiction, sex addiction, uh, eating disorders. You know, there's a whole gamut, there's a whole spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. So it's interesting when we do functional MRIs and, and do genetics. There's, like I said, a lot of the same genes are are involved. Uh, many of, most of them are, but there are slight variations mm-hmm. uh, with activity in certain axis of the brain. There's also, uh, you know, uh, some little genes that are a little bit distinct with some of these disorders. Uh, it's very complex. It's, it's not just one or two gene issue. We're looking at, you know, extensive gene clusters that also affect your know, personality and mood. So within there, within that, depending upon probably psych, uh, environmental factors, whether in utero, postpartum, because we know a lot of inflammation, if, if the mother's exposed to a lot of inflammation, um, and, that, and therefore the, the, the fetus and then the, the infant is exposed to a lot of inflammation, um, that can increase the risk for both uh, manifestation of a psychiatric, you know, a addiction, but also a psychiatric disorder. We're looking at that at its core root is the underlying cause. And there's lots of factors. But how, we, how, the, how, the, or how the person responds or the child or the adult responds, it's slightly vary, it, it, it varies depending upon their own Probably some genes we haven't discovered yet or don't know that interplay with that, but then also environmental factors probably what's called epigenetic control, mm-hmm. which is, I, I, I don't want to go beyond this, but just you know, epigenetic control is the, there's control mechanisms, molecules that sit on top of the genes, and they can be modified in our lifetime, good or bad or otherwise, that can influence whether genes are expressed or not, and so those probably also play a role, so it's quite a complex question, but that but all those factors probably go into determining why a person has one addiction over another. So ultimately, two questions. I've noticed that there's been some recent research that indicates that inflammation causes mood swings. Um, where does inflammation come from? Is that mostly uh, food, or is it is that also genetic? Or yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful, that's an excellent question, and, and it's really an exciting area of research. Uh, in, 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 in addiction, in, in psychiatry. So it can be external. It could be an infection like a, a bacterial, a viral, or, a, or, a, or a, a, a parasite. 
so in, in the third world countries, the parasites, of course, are prevalent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that can happen. It, it could be something external. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could also be uh, people who, in, for example, who have more allergies or asthma or an autoimmune disorder like, like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or uh, multiple sclerosis. And uh, those people who inherited these genes tend to have more innate inflammation. Okay, it's all part of a spectrum where, of course, allergies are on the, 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 the low end of the spectrum and rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis on the far end, but they're all part of the spectrum of autoimmune dysfunction that affects inflammation. Your gut microbiome also plays a role. I'm sure you've heard and read a lot about that lately. Um, here are all these 100 trillion uh, bacteria that are in your gut determine 70% of our uh, immune system, and essentially that's in, in, the immune system's responsible to, for inflammation, uh, a great deal of it. Also, uh, body fat is a significant, if the more uh, adipose tissue a person has, the more fat uh, it produces hormones, including a lot of inflammation. There's environmental uh, uh, inflammation, like from pollution, right? And in all the other countries, you know, like, uh, you know, if you were, it, it varies where you live, but most of us in the modern world and urban get significant pollutants. Um, and things of that sort, electromagnetic, electromagnetic radiation is also highly inflammatory. So there's environmental factors, genetic factors, and then obviously some lifestyle, what you eat, uh, the kind of foods you eat, um, also will, will determine whether or not you have inflammation. But there's this, a very strong genetic component to that. So, wow, then that indicates that a person with an addiction could actually be getting uh, the resources to feed that addiction from everywhere. From infl- it's like, for example, yeah. if a person's depressed and they, uh, like I told you about food addiction, they, if they eat the wrong foods, that right. can cause inflammation, which can kind of cause a chain reaction, which can cause depression, which can yeah. cause, okay, so then it, it, with drugs, it's, I also thought that with uh, addiction that it's reaching back to the first time you felt a certain way. So if I'm in college and I have a drink and I have a great time uh, that night, Am I, as an addict, chasing that night later on down the line if I'm an unhappy person? Okay, so I, I, I think it's, I think I, I'm going to, I think I understand your question. I'm going to respond, and if it's not, you just correct me, and I can, I, I'll, I'll, I'll adjust it. But so, as I mentioned earlier, people who have, some people who are somewhere on, who have a little, some genetic inheritance, maybe a little, maybe a lot, depends where they are on the spectrum, you know, depends on a lot of genetic factors. They may have a tendency towards an addiction, let's say a food addiction. So when they eat the food, especially certain foods, like sugar, and, and all the fast food places like McDonald's and all these other places have done the science behind what, like, you know, I think Oreos are pure crack, right? Right, <laughs> I mean, they are. I mean, and, and some of that that caramel corn, I mean, they designed the fat, protein, and, 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 and carb ratio just right that it triggers all the right hormones in our brain and elsewhere. So there's a science behind that, but I digress. So let's, let's say you eat a food that uh, gives you a fond memory or makes you feel good. Basically what it's doing is, especially with people who have addiction, it's actually stimulating dopamine release in your brain, and that's due to genetic factors and then the food. So it makes you feel better, and therefore you know, it's, it's, a, it's a positive reinforcer. At the same time, that memory that you just mentioned about, thinking back, it goes into another part of your brain, the hippocampus, and when you think, so not only does that cause a reward, you know, the reward when you take it, but also the memory of it, the anticipation, is, it can trigger also a reward response. And, and so for a lot of people who have addictions, all kinds, it's the anticipation of 
shooting up or the anticipation of the food, the anticipation of the drink or whatever, it actually starts, it's actually the most satisfying and the most addicting oftentimes, right? And then, um, then they obviously will continue with the act, but it's, it's that pre, and that is remembered in our memory as a part of that reward system, yes. It's in the hippocampus, but uh, probably other areas as well, but it is, yes, that memory, it gets, and the more we do it, then the more reinforced it gets, and that's why, if we, that's why we think back to that, you know, we're more likely to maybe act on it. It's, it's definitely there. That makes perfect sense. Did I answer the question correctly? Kevin? That's that a, absolutely. So that, and I'm going to add to that. So that indicates that if, like you said, it's it's the anticipation, which is why you see like a drug addict get so excited when they get the drugs. You know, and then they calm down after they shoot it up. You know what I mean? It's like they're, they're very excited when they get it, and that there's that anticipation if you watch a real drug addict. Um, Right. And then when they use it, they calm down. But exactly. it, it, you see that that real high is in the anticipation of doing it. Uh, but it, when that's you, correct. That's, when, that's right. When you said that, I thought about something else. So that would indicate that, uh, for example, with a food addiction versus an alcohol addiction or a drug addiction, some people have addictions where they want to remember and others where they want to forget. So if I was molested as a kid... Yeah. Uh, I, and I don't want to think about that. I might drink right. as, as an adult, but if I have fond memories of getting a piece of cake when I was good as a kid, then I want to remember that mm-hmm. that feeling. So addiction, right. it could so be either way. People have different you know, responses to their underlying addiction, right? It depends on all those factors you just talked about. It's quite, it's quite layered and complex, isn't it? Because humans are layered and complex. Mm-hmm. Can people be addicted to success? There may be some aspects of that, like when we say success is junk term, if you operationalize it, define it, there may be some aspect. Mm-hmm. If you were to break it down and really look deep down, they have something that you might be that, that might be uh, an addiction. We don't have, to my knowledge, and I'm pretty sure there's not a, a APA, American Psychiatric Association, uh, um, you know, disease process that, 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 that uh, addiction to success that's defined. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that as an I'm an entrepreneur. They don't have some aspect of it, right? <laughs> right. I'm an entrepreneur, and I, I know that I'm addicted to being an entrepreneur. I know that. And all my friends who are entrepreneurs, there's an addiction that goes along with that. We never stop working. Well, that's a positive. Yeah. But, you know, it's okay to have positive reinforcement for good behavior and activities. Look, people, an addiction really is defined. <clears throat> we, we, we use the term loosely, of course, and for lots, lots of different contexts, and there's nothing wrong with that. But from a strict definition, there's usually 11 criteria that we use, and there has to be a lot. So for, to be a true addiction, regardless of what, what it is, it has to have a lot of negative consequences associated with it, okay? Now, that's not to say striving for entrepreneurial success can't have some negative consequences, but you have to go through and look at the criteria that they've established to see how many of those that, you know, they, you would really, you know, do you get a withdrawal from it? Do you have, does it cause you to have a problem social interacting with your friends, colleagues, like you're missing work? do it if it continues to cause harm I and mean, there's lots of different levels and if you went through all those criteria um and, and you met some of them well, then possibly I, I suppose but you know positive and negative behavior do get rewarded in certain ways right but remember there always has to be some kind of self and other harm you see negative significant negative, negative consequences when we de- define true addiction so well you know i ask you just how you motivated i ask you about the the uh, possibility of an addiction with success because for example the gym I go to the gym, and I, yeah. there are certain people, I don't care what time I go. I could go during the day. I could go first thing in the morning. I could go in the afternoon. There are certain people who are always there. Mm-hmm. 
and they're, they're, some of them are older, and they get to the point where they, they're, they're no longer developing muscles. They have flat muscles, so, so they start to look, yep. you know, weird. They start to look a sort of sort of atrophied. And I'm thinking to myself, what what is your goal? I mean, at, at a certain point, I mean, do you have, and this is why I say that some uh, good addictions could probably be negative in connotation because if I'm only working out constantly, do I have a job? Right. Do I have relationships? Do That's I right. have, am I taking vacations? Yeah. You know, am I, am I doing anything in other areas of my life? And perhaps that's what I'm, uh, maybe there should be more studies on other types of addictions because there is always generally a focus on alcohol and drugs, but there, there could be negative connotations to those other addictions. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'll, I'll just, and this is not the, the, the major topic, but I do want to throw the fact here. I do have an expertise in hormone, uh, as a hormone specialist. And what I think I mentioned the NAS just offline with a few went on, but, you know, a lot of people who are bodybuilders, even if they're not professional, they have a lot of them have co-occurring disorders, like mm-hmm. bipolar and other things, and they, they use that training to help make them feel better and kind of a self-medication, but they have an underlying disorder and that, that, that basically feeds that kind of behavior, right? Oh, okay. That makes sense. So they self-medicate in another way. So it's just it's just like well, the person who... We have people who go into a body... Go ahead. Right, Kevin. There are other people who tone extensively because, man, the wind is... So we're seeing more wind. We have men now, too. Of course, that have, uh, you know, uh, body dysmorphic disorders, right? Yeah. You know? Um, and, and, you know, not, anorexia would be considered, a, you know, a severe aspect of that, but... But there's other body dysmorphic disorders and things that the people go in, and even though they look good to the rest of us, or they look fine or normal to them, they, they don't look, you know, it's in their own self-image, and they look in the mirror, they see something else. And so th- those things, could, they could lead to, addic- you know, like, like obsessive compulsive behavior, right? That's right. Like people like, who go to the gym all day and night, you wonder what the hell they do for a living, you're right. And then also plastic surgery. I mean, the, the current craze where, you know, some people go so far um, that they, they look like mannequins or, you know, they just, uh, uh, what, what is that about? Is that, can that be an addiction too? Can you be addicted to plastic surgery? Yes. Well, that's probably body dysmorphic disorder. Mm-hmm. You know, it's probably, that's a, that's a psychiatric disorder. Uh, I don't, you know, I mean, could they, I, I wouldn't be surprised in this specific I wouldn't be surprised if uh, some of these people have overlapped, maybe running their family some some addiction, right? Yeah. Because they have a excuse me, I'm a They have uh, you know they have a substance behavior and, and they do a lot of things that and you can see the results they that they have that outcome that they have. But anyway, yeah. So they, they may have a, you don't know always know, but they may have a, a cold current, you know, some kind of psychiatric disorder. And of course, remember, there's about a sixty to eighty percent overlap between psychiatric disorders and addiction, right? They share a lot of the same gene sets. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and then maybe they just we need more research to really kind of vet that out. Mm-hmm. So in essence, what you're basically saying is that if your parents are alcoholic, for example, and you're a kid, there's a good chance that you you may have some sort of addiction, but it could manifest itself in another form. It doesn't necessarily have to be. Like my father was an alcoholic, so I don't drink a lot. And I, right. you know, and because I, I watched him and I was like, okay, I don't want to be like that. You know, um, right. but then I've seen other people right. whose fathers were alcoholics and they, they travel the exact same path. Um, so it could manifest itself. So even though I might be escaping the alcohol, it could come in another form. 
It yeah. could, in fact. So that's a, that's a really good point. And I'll just give an example. Let's say someone uh, is a heroin addict, mm-hmm. okay? And they come in for treatment, and they get clean and sober. And they go out back, they go leave the facility, and they go back out in the world, and maybe hopefully they're getting outpatient and, you know, you know, all kinds of counseling on a regular basis. But, but let's say that all of a sudden they start, you know, if, if, they, if they start smoking, you know, uh, you know, smoking cigarettes, maybe marijuana, maybe, maybe they're drinking alcohol. They aren't doing heroin, but they're doing other drugs like that. That will, that will be gateway drugs for them to return to the heroin. It's not, you know, so we have a lot of, there's a lot of debate going out, you know, with marijuana. And for people who don't have the disease of addiction, they can use recreational drugs. You can smoke every once in a while. They can use marijuana. They can, and they'll never have an issue. But if you are, you have that genetic inheritance, it will, it will make you more likely to relapse even if you use something that was not your, your drug of choice. Wow. They all activate that reward system. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So it, that's that's why, you know, it, it's not all black and white in this world, right? There's, there's points that have to be made. So if they were heroin addicts and they go back and they used to start smoking a lot, and which most of them do because uh, it's legal, or drink, or, you know, smoke a little weed or something, they're more likely to relapse onto their, their drug of choice again down the road. So, very, very interesting yeah, you should so say that because I have... activate that reward system <laughs> yeah. and make them more likely to relax. Because what happens is, is that people who have the disease, the genetic disorder, brain disease of addiction, they go around with less happy hormone, dopamine. They have a lower dopamine tone, we call it. So they have a lower level than people who don't have it. So they're always a little bit less happy, a little bit less discontented. When they take a drug of any sort that activates the reward center, it puts them up really high, gives them a real high spike, um, and so the, diff- the, the so where they were at baseline to where they spike is a lot higher than it would be for someone who doesn't have that genetic disorder. So they get much more more of a high. But of course, the the, the, the sad part is that after that high goes away, their level, the dopamine levels go back down below baseline, below where they were last time, and that's why they chase the dragon's tail. Right, right, right. For the next fix, yeah. Aren't creatives, aren't creatives more apt to have addiction issues and psychological and mental issues? Creative people. Aren't creative people more um, inclined to have addictive? Because that, and that, that leads me to my next question about the entertainment industry. But I know a lot of people who are creatives, and I see the mental illness, as it, you know, and the addictions and the other things that you know they may hide pretty well. But I always thought the yeah. creatives. I'm also a creative. I always thought the creatives ha- are slightly different than the rest of the population. And they That's do right. require much more to feed uh, that that urge or that that uh, their interest. So that's why sometimes I, I you would, go ahead. I've treat, yes, and I, I've treated lots of I have lots of clients in, in present and past who are like entertainment industry, music, or they're, they're actors, actresses, famous artists, you know, lots of different things. So I have a pretty good. I mean, I've done. I don't know, several hundred probably in my 27 years, so quite a few. And I would say that in my experience, that is true. It's interesting, you know, the brain, the brain processes, you know, people who have a little have creativity, they, they maybe they're closer on the cusp of that spectrum of having a little bit of that, you know, uh, you know uh, ability to, to fall over into the addiction side. Maybe it's, some, maybe it's you know, it's the, it's the flip side of the coin. I will say this, though. Um, so I do, I would say that in my experiences in 27 years, I would validate what you just said. The, the nice, the hopeful point, though, 
is that when people who who are really successful, um, if we can laser focus on the positive, you know, they even if they have an addiction, inherited some of that brain disease, they can really succeed way above and beyond some rare mortals like maybe myself that don't have that. I mean, you know, if, when they're focused on their addiction, however, they're really laser focused on it as well. So that's the flip side, you know, uh, that's the corollary. But if they really can, through good uh, recovery, um, treatment, and and support, and because being sober, boy, those people can really come up with wonderfully creative and successful uh, endeavors and things that influence the world in a positive way. But yes, are you saying that creatives have to do have to be of service in order to be more mentally stable instead of in, in other words in other words instead of more focusing on themselves that when they for example when they do do um, philanthropic work uh, that they're more likely to be mentally healthy I think well, when we're talking about people, let's say people who are high profile, mm-hmm. they're humans and they, and they have the same genetic, I mean, they have the same genetic issues that everyone else has. Um, and, you know, they respond, you know, biochemically, they, you know, most of the way. But they have a lot of enabling things. So they have, tend to more have more resources, right, financial and otherwise. Yeah, so people that want to be a part of their posse or their world and sometimes won't always criticize them because, you know, they are successful. They have, and they can look to that and they respect them. So sometimes they don't speak out. Which can be a problem, though, right? It can get because they can lead down that slippery slope, and you know we, we have there's many sad tales of we all know them of all these wonderful creative people who end up overdosing. But uh, but if they can't, so they need to have they need to go through treatment and, uh, and processes just like everyone else. Uh, maybe in a certain environment that is uh, specializes in these kind of so they have it set up in a way not to enable them, but also to understand that they have some unique challenges to get back out in the world. And just like people who are first providers, you know, who are uh, military and police and fire, when they have addictions, they have uh, they need they do better in a specialized group as well. Um, but when they get out, they have to have a very strong group support that keeps them away from the paraphernalia and keeps them from the enabling behaviors and attitudes. Because a lot of these people, they they work late, they're hard, but then they stay up late. They, they party. There's groupies. There's people. There's there's a lot of people who want to you know be part of their world and will do things uh, that wouldn't be in their best interest. So they do have that, that issue um, that makes it a little more challenging sometimes to deal with them. And then also, they know they have financial needs and other things that sometimes they can blow up. Uh, they, they, you know, humans, the human body temple responds regardless of it. The body temple doesn't care if you're you know, a billion-dollar famous artist or you're not. Uh, it just cares about health. So but people, if we're successful in certain aspects of our lives, Sometimes we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're we're different, immune from uh, the consequences, and, and we are. But you know, it's, it's easy to, to to when people are telling you how great you are all the time. You know, it's easy to sometimes believe it, mm. believe the hype. You know, and it can work the opposite way too. When people are telling you how horrible you are. Um, so it is, it, it is yes. yeah, yeah. It can go either way with addiction it's like either you, you, you hate yourself and you have talent or you love yourself and you have no talent it could go either way um, with creatives yeah. so tell me about the, this. what you're doing with the music industry right now we recently did a story where you're working with people in the music industry or the entertainment industry um, for 30 days right. can you tell me about that yeah, you know, um, I, I'm aware of that, that we do that, because we, you know, we're, we're headquartered here in Music City, 
Um, Maz has more of the details than the information gotcha. right now. So you can mm. give him. Can you? Could you? You could embellish that a little bit better than I could, couldn't you? I mean, I. Yeah. Yeah. Maz, I, I, I don't mean. To, I could. I could give you. I could give you the overview, but Maz knows it far more detail. If you don't. If you want. If you don't mind. So what it is? Um, American Fiction Center donated twelve scholarships to musicians who are unable to pay for treatment. Um, each of these musicians will receive uh, 30, 30 days of treatment for free at our facility, one of our facilities. Um, and it's just our way of giving back to um, the music industry. Like Dr. Clark said, we're headquartered here in Music City. Um, we've become kind of involved in, in the music industry. We recently um, sponsored an event for the Academy of Country Music Awards. We're sponsoring a another Grammy event called the Concert for Recovery um, that's going to take place on May 10th. So we figured since we're getting more into this particular field, um, we should probably get that because with the amount of overdoses um, of prominent musicians that we're seeing, it, it's evident that help is needed. So we're just doing our part to, do, to, to help out. What is a common denominator with industry people when it comes to getting them into treatment when they really need it, but they're resistant? Privacy. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, also, embarrassment. Right. Right. Not it not not measuring up. You know, mm. still sometimes you know it's a, you know unfortunately you know the thing about people with high profile and let's say musicians or other successful entertainers, um, they have a persona and a, an image that is really important for the marketing. Um, and, and, you know, addiction doesn't always fit into that. Okay. Particular, uh, you know. Uh, Seems like it uh, does these days. Uh, definition. Or, 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 yeah. So, right. And, mm-hmm. you know, but, but inside, most of, look, I'm going to generalize with my personal experience, and I've worked with hundreds, of course, I told you. Most of them are wonderful people mm-hmm. at the core, but, you know, they're in an industry that's, boy, you know, they, they, as part, it's very difficult to have privacy, respect, freedom. People are always trying to jockey for something. Mm-hmm. Um, there's challenge, you know, in that industry. And, it's, uh, and also the, the lifestyle surrounding the industry is such that there's lots of entertainment, after parties, you know, they include alcohol and other, other things, you know, that it's, it's, it's part of, you know, the, the culture. And that's, those are all paraphernalia and triggers that could increase the risk for, for, uh, for, for uh, addiction or, or relapse. The other thing is, so those are, I think, for, in my experience, those are two of the main ones. Also, um, you know, they, they are very creative people. And just like we have a, 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 a really wonderful program for first responders, because they have special, they have, a, they have kind of breath and kindred, they kind of a brotherhood or sisterhood that's really important. And they feel a part. They feel, uh, you know, that people don't understand them because the kind of things that they do. I think entertainers oftentimes feel the same way, and, and they are very special. Many of them are, right? They're super highly talented. Uh, they have talent above and beyond uh, most people. That's why we appreciate them so much. Um, and, and sometimes, and so they may need an environment that understands that. It doesn't I, enable them, but still respects them uh, and, and try, to, try to minimize you know, all those other things that I, that I mentioned when they go into treatment. And that there are facilities, obviously, that have special, that cater for, uh, you know, for, for this industry. 
You know, I've known several celebrities who've had um, addictions, and I know a couple right now. And I find that the uh, common denominator is just like you said, it's an issue of privacy. And uh, even though that's changing, it's almost like, um, you know, having some sort of deficit is actually a plus in today's industry um, because of social media and, I guess, people being much closer to the celebrity and, and, and feeling like they're much more like them than they thought. But uh, what I've noticed is that there's also an issue with feeling like they're responsible for other people. That if they, even right. if they take a short break, that somebody's not going to eat. Um, the, the pressure is is just uh, is outrageous. The, the the amount of pressure that they feel to be who other people think they should be, and at the same time having to take care of so many people in the process, which I would think would also right. feed into. Uh, the addiction, because who, who takes yeah, care of them? Point. Very good point. Very true. You know, they are broadcasters. When we talk about what makes, you know, what what kind of their information, so they're they're broadcasting information sources, and so you know, people uh, and we have all these social media, right, which disseminates all this, you know, good, bad, and otherwise. But they can be a, a really wonderful change agent because they are such, you know, uh, big broadcasters that. Uh, of information mm-hmm. to destigmatize addiction, to let it know, and it's also part of recovery. When people are working their recovery, they have to be transparent. I mean, that's part of the recovery process, whether it's twelve step or other things. People really need to be introspective, and also, you know, um, they also need to be transparent with themselves and others. That's part of the recovery. And you have to work that every day, and that's most of the recovery treatment plans involve that psychosocial aspect, which I think is really good. But they have potential to do tremendous good uh, showing, to, to, to destigmatize it and show that regardless of how successful you may be, it can affect anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not, it can affect any, any, uh, any gender, any age, any ethnicity, uh, any amount of person, rich or poor or in between. And that can hopefully make other people more likely to want to seek treatment, you know. Mm-hmm. Is, is there situations where you can't treat someone? If you do it right. Um, and that requires things like motivational interviewing and, and tactical empathy and a lot of wonderful things. I've seen our chairman and uh, get people who no one else could get in treatment to get him in treatment. So I think that's a training issue, an experiential issue. Um, but that being said, humans do have self-determination, right? They have their own souls. Mm-hmm. I mean, people sometimes just, you know, they, they aren't ready. They're in a pre-contemplative stage, we call it, where they just aren't ready to seek treatment. They have... You know, and that's an important part of the process. They have to move from that to a contemplative state, which means that they actually are thinking about it, and then they have to have action after that. So you can't force people doing it. I mean, certain courts can, can, you know, sometimes make people go, but they don't have a really good response rate, you know, initially. Um, but, you know, it, it, I think if you have a really high, a good staff with a lot of experience and empathy, and they use a lot of wonderful things like motivational interviewing and other tech, you know, to, uh, associate uh, uh, modalities, we can get... I've seen really experienced people pretty much get anybody in treatment. I, mean, uh, I, I can't say it's 100%. I mean, it's, you know, again, people have, people do have their own will and determination. So, uh, you know, there may be a time when, especially if they're young and, and they don't think they have an addiction, that can be challenging. Right. Final question. When you look at the prison system on the outside, or on the other side of what we're talking about, success, do you think that there's a lot of mental illness and addiction um, that perhaps we may be treating uh, the, the uh, people in prison for the wrong thing instead of what, what's really wrong? 
That's a really great. That's a really good question. I was recently in Massachusetts where they have a one of our uh, facilities, AdCare. They have a wonderful program that works with uh, people who are coming out. They're on, they're on probation, or they came out of you know the um, the, the collective uh, uh, correctional facilities and things of that sort. Um, so there's anywhere where you know again. It, Addiction affects people everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a significant portion of people who have that that brain disease, and in, 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 or you know, who maybe maybe due to their addiction or other reasons, or um, or, or, or having to serve you know some kind of correctional facility time. And they, as I said before, 60, 80 percent has some kind of co-occurring disorder, you know, some kind of psychiatric disorder, depression, or, or bipolar, or something else. So they do need if you want to keep them uh, out of that out of the uh, judicial system then you do definitely need to have them evaluated for both those, uh, for both addiction and any kind of uh, co-occurring disorder. And then, of course, they should be, they should be treated. Okay. Progressive Coaching for a Better Life. This is Pennies from Kevin. Please follow us on Instagram at Pennies from Kevin or on Twitter at Pennies from Kev. Also, please feel free to share this podcast.